I will say if we don't act otherwise, I do think that word will become obsolete. I think um, the reason that I'm, you know, like sounding the alarm and, and calling our attention to this fundamental aspect of liberty, which needs updating in the digital age to include this idea of cognitive liberty is because we are making that obsolete and we're making the basic foundations and fundamental concept of liberty obsolete if we don't act otherwise and do something differently now. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. One of the current topics they talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper? Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of the head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. My guest today is a highly sought after keynote speaker, author, academic, and a professor of law. She serves on numerous government and corporate neuroethics, bioethics, and tech ethics advisory boards, and is an elected member of the American Law Institute. We continue our neurotech series on Heads Talk today with a conversation about the laws, the ethics, the implications and outcomes, and the unintended consequences of today's and tomorrow's new technology. Grab onto your seats with this one. It's going to be compelling. But before we get into that, here's a brief message. U.S. Private Capital Forum Go Real 2023 launched now with on-demand sessions offering attendees the utmost flexibility to access industry-specific content and deals on their terms. It will bring together over 100 speakers from across Europe over a broad agenda covering private equity, venture capital, real estate, and private debt. For details, visit www.eurosforum.org. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Robinson O. Everett Professor Nita A. Farhani is a professor of law and philosophy at Duke University and the founding director of the Duke Initiative for Science and Society. She's a frequent commentator for national media and radio and is a speaker at events including TED, the Aspen Ideas Festival, the World Economic Forum and judicial conferences worldwide. From 2010 to 2017, she served as a commissioner on the US Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethics Issues. She is the co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Law and the Biosciences and sits on the Board of Advisors for Scientific America. Nita holds an AB Genetics from Dartmouth College, a Master's of Liberal Arts Biology from Harvard University, and a JD, MA, and PhD Philosophy from Duke University. Let's begin. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Nita to this Neurotech series on Heads Talk. Delighted to have you here today. So happy to be here with you. Okay, this is an exciting episode, and I've been looking forward to this conversation with you. I, I want to read an extract from your book to give the listeners a taste of what's to come with this discussion here today. A new dawn of brain tracking and hacking is coming. Will you be prepared for what comes next? Imagine a world where your brain can be interrogated to learn your political beliefs. Your thoughts can be used as evidence of a crime and your own feelings can be held against you. A world where people who suffer from epilepsy receive alerts moments before a seizure, and the average person can peer into their own minds to eliminate painful memories or cure addictions. Neuroscience has already made all of this possible today, and neurotechnology will soon become the universal controller for all our interactions with technology. This can benefit humanity immensely, but without safeguards, it can seriously threaten our fundamental rights to privacy, freedom of thought, and self-determination. This is from the book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. Congratulations on this book, and uh, we will just dissect it during the, the course of this discussion. But first, please provide my listeners with a summary of the book and the the sequence of events, um, activities that led to its production. Sure. So the basic premise of the book is 
um, that the era of widespread brain wearables is upon us. Um, and by brain wearables, I mean, just like people are used to sensors in their, in their watches or in their rings that track things like their breaths and body temperature and heart rate, yeah. um, brain sensors uh, are able to track the electrical activity in the brain. Um, and with the advances in artificial intelligence, that allows for decoding of basic cognitive and affective states like, are you tired? Are you awake? Are you paying attention? Are you bored? Are you engaged? Are you aroused? Um, those types of things. Uh, and while that presents both a huge market opportunity for companies and um, a significant opportunity for tracking our health, uh, our brain health, in the same way that we track the rest of our physical well-being. It also presents um, really novel risks that uh, could be deeply problematic if we don't move to recognize a right to mental privacy, freedom of thought, and overall cognitive liberty, self-determination in our brains and mental experiences. Mm -hmm. I've been tracking this field of neurotechnology for more than a decade, but um, to your question of you know, kind of what prompted the yeah. development of the book, it was really in 2018, when I saw a presentation um, by one of the then executives of a company called Control Labs, who was um, demoing a product that took brain sensors and embedded them into the form of basically a watch or a bracelet. Um, and it was early days of it still, but what he was demonstrating was the capability of both detecting brain activity from, you know, your peripheral nervous system as your brain sends signals mm -hmm. down to your arm and your wrist to move, to type on keyboards, to swipe. And he was talking about it in a way that was different than I had heard in the past, which was instead of niche applications like meditation or just fatigue monitoring, for example, using it as a way to interface with the rest of our technology. Um, and when I understood that both the form factor that is embedding brain sensors into everyday technology was coming and that um, the application, the kind of killer app that really makes a technology go widespread was also coming, which was to apply it as, as the new controller for our devices. Um, I realized that it was a, a very large future trend. I was convinced that Apple was going to buy that company just because of you know the advances they already had and and market leadership and uh smartwatches so I was very very surprised when a year later meta acquired them for um somewhere between 500 million to a billion dollars and that's when I realized that you know the kind of battle for corporations to be first to market and um to gain market domination in this space was underway so that that's really what motivated the timing of writing the book so that was the beginnings of it. Um, and, and how has it been received by peers and the public and media? I, I seem to oh. have touched a nerve quite literally. <laughs> and, um, you know, the media has uh, covered it extensively. Um, the public engagement with it has been um, extraordinary. And, uh, and academics have been really engaging deeply with the ideas. I think what has been most interesting to me is is to see that people are really receiving it um, in this moment of of increased anxieties and recognition of the pace of artificial mm -hmm. intelligence mm -hmm. um, advances. They're really receiving this as a book about AI because it it, it really is in some ways, right? It's, it's, it's about it's, AI decoding yeah. the brain. So it's, um, it's literally the perfect timing. Your book has come out. It's kind of it's the book that people need to sit and read through in order to understand what is going right. on right now at, at such a pace and and perfect timing, Nita. Well, you know, that's, that's I would say, luck because it was, <laughs> um, you know, the, uh, the the fact that, you know, ChatGPT and um, generative AI launched at the same time and that the public dialogue around it and the, and the quest to have answers really, like yeah. how yeah. do we navigate this space? This book offers that, right? It's not, it's not just another book about, what's happening, yeah. but offering kind of a concrete way ahead. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it, you know, it's, it's just, it could not have been better timed for the the needs yeah. of a society to engage in these yeah. topics. And yeah. I think that's the reason why, um, you know, it's being as mm. well received as it has been. Yeah, let's talk about some of the things you, you, you talked about. Let's look at some of the, the impacts you talked about in, in your book, um, in particular, the, the impact on sectors industry sectors um, let's start with the, the justice system 
what would you say mm -hmm. is the impact of the the advancements of the newer science and newer technology and at the current speed that we've just talked about on the justice system what are you seeing mm -hmm. so you know it's that's really where for me the inquiry about all of this began because you know a decade ago as i started tracking the trends at that time it was really criminal defendants who were bringing brain imaging into the courtroom. And so, you know, they were having neuropsychiatric evaluations mm -hmm. and brain imaging done, and then coming in to say, look, um, the reason I committed this crime is because of a brain abnormality, because of a tumor or because of, you know, mm -hmm. some organic brain difference. Mm -hmm. um, and I became interested then in, you know, how was it being received by jurors and judges? How were prosecutors and law enforcement thinking about it? It wasn't long after that that um, you know some some big and bulky uh, companies, and I say big and bulky in the technology, they mm -hmm. they started to introduce lie detection with functional magnetic resonance imaging, and these are you know giant MRI machines that a person goes into. They're slow and cumbersome, mm -hmm. um, but they were you know purporting that uh, you could look at brain imaging and ask people a series of questions and see based on their brain activity whether they were lying or telling the truth. Mm -hmm. That kicked off these questions of how how will the justice system address whether you have a right to not have your brain interrogated? Um, you know, do you have a right against self-incrimination in the same way that you don't have to testify against yourself? Can your brain be made to testify against you? Um, and now fast forward to where we are today, and the technology has become much more portable and smaller. Mm. It's um, EEG, so these are electroencephalography devices that, you know, can be worn in the form of a baseball cap or, mm -hmm. um, you know, a helmet or something that um, is just put on somebody and, and all the electrodes just need to make contact with the, um, with the scalp and they can pick up the electrical activity in, in the brain. And there are law enforcement agencies worldwide who are using this um, to ask criminal suspects uh, whether it's through questions or through throw, showing them statements or showing them images, yeah. um, whether they recognize pertinent crime scene details. And, and by that, I mean, you know, there, there are these probes that are developed, you know, going through a police file, finding facts that somebody shouldn't be aware of unless yeah. they were participating or were, you know, at the crime scene um, and then showing them those statements or images and seeing if, the unconscious and automatic reaction in the brain um, is consistent with recognition of those crime scene details. And that technology for a while, you know, was really just one researcher who had not had um, secondary validation of his findings. Mm -hmm. Now there are other researchers like out of Australia who have validated those findings. Um, and there are many law enforcement agencies who've been using it for a while. And you know, claim to have had success in being able to either obtain confessions as a result of the, um, you know, brain evidence or, uh, yeah. you know, relevant evidence that they've admitted into trials. Uh, so, you know, that to me is a, in many ways, very scary application of the technology because um, of really breaching the privacy of one's own brain and mental space and thoughts and using people in, in, you know, to testify against themselves in ways that mm -hmm. our ideals of self-incrimination have long been meant to protect against. But if you if you find that concerning, what about DNA and the when DNA was discovered and used in, in in that way? Surely this is just an advancement of that. Well, so I, I'm less troubled by that um, for the reason that it's not that I think that there's no evidence from the body that could be used. So for example, you know, you find um you know, some fibers from a sweater or something that's at the crime scene and it matches perfectly, you know, fibers that are missing from the sweater of somebody or, mm -hmm. you know, other kinds of physical evidence from a person's body. Even, you know, you catch um, a, a voice on a recording and then you ask for a voice exemplar to see whether or not it matches. That kind of evidence doesn't get into a person's mind, literally, right? It doesn't require that we take the substantive content of what you're thinking and feeling and use that mm -hmm. against you. So I think evidence from our brains 
is different in kind than a DNA sample, which is just confirming identity, right? That's different. Um, if you were using uh, DNA in a different way, which is to try to create a uh, psycho um, analytic kind of profile of a person saying, well, here's all of the behavioral traits of the person based on their DNA and their predispositions. And that gives me a, um, you know, kind of psychological mm -hmm. profile of mm -hmm. who the criminal is. I think that's a different use of DNA that I would be more troubled with. But when you're using it literally just to say, here's a blood sample at the crime scene, which we can sequence for DNA to figure out the person's identity. And then here's the sample from the person and they match. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a different kind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Okay. And um, let's look at some of um, the portable technologies that you mentioned. Um, I'd like to know where or what is the danger in consumer neurotech? You know, the wearables you talked about or medical neurotech, what's real and what's fantasy? Mm, that's a good question. So I'd say, why don't we start with what's fantasy, which is, um, you know, to date, I am not familiar with any technology that, um, you know, is hidden from view or remotely, you know, used on people. Um, what we're really talking about is is sensors in the same kind of way as sensors that are in watches and rings and other, you know, Fitbits and devices that people wear. Uh, so these are small sensors that can be put into earbuds and headphones and headbands and even small wearable tattoos. Then the question is, what's real for what they can decode? Um, and, you know, here uh, there are a couple of things that that um, get in the way of good recordings from the brain. Mm -hmm. One of them is basic things like hair, which interfere with good contact with the scalp. And the second is, you know, electrical activity has to bubble up through the brain, through the skull in order to reach these sensors. And so it doesn't peer as deeply and without interference into the brain as something like functional magnetic resonance, functional magnetic resonance imaging does. Mm -hmm. um, and so the signal quality is not as good as some other modalities. And then there are some interference when you have sensors that are on the scalp with good signal quality, which are things like muscle twitches and eye blinks. Mm -hmm. um, so we start there, which is you're picking up something, but it's not the highest quality signal imaginable. Mm -hmm. And then um, given that, what can be decoded? And here it matters on how many sensors you have because it's averaging information across the brain. Do you have one sensor in each ear, which are earbuds? Do you have you know 14 to 16 sensors around each ear, which would be in headphones? The more sensors you have, the more brain activity you can pick up. And then... It's how good are the algorithms at associating mm -hmm. that with um, anything that's happening in your brain. And today, what is fantasy is real mind reading in the sense of like what you're thinking and what the visual images are in your mind with everyday brain sensors. Those kinds of things can be picked up with the bigger, more sophisticated technology like fMRI, but not from wearables. Mm -hmm. What wearables can pick up is basic brain states. Um, and by this... I mean, you know, if you have um, high stress levels or you are paying attention or your mind is wandering, you're engaged or you are bored at work, um, you are, you know, at a high level of arousal or a very low level of arousal um, in, you know, response to your environment. Uh, and, and, and then with additional probes, like what I was talking about with the criminal justice system or even, you know, something in your game screen, if you're using it for neuro gaming or in your computer screen, your response to information can be picked up. So do you recognize it? Is it congruent or incongruent? Um, and that recognition or, or your emotional response in response to some kind of stimulus mm -hmm. can be quite telling as well, right? So if I, um, if somebody were to be wearing a brain wearable and, uh, you know, somebody were to flash in front of them messaging, like political messaging, mm -hmm. understanding if they're reacting to that political mm -hmm. messaging positively or negatively could reveal a lot about their internal biases and preferences. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the same could be said for any kind of information that does that sort of probing as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, just as a side question, the accuracy of this um, mm -hmm. is is it as is it more accurate than you know the lie detectors? Um, so 
because lying is such a complex psychological phenomena, mm -hmm. um, it is more accurate to test for something like recognition. Recognition is a much easier, um, you know, psychological phenomena to to code to begin with. I think yeah. part of the reason why lying has been such a tricky thing to decode, no matter what kind of technology there is, is, you know, how do you really describe what lying is? What is that behavior? What is, you know, what you're really trying to figure out is yes, no answers to something. And it's a mm -hmm. proxy to get at that, which is pretty imprecise. Um, so I think part of it is the technology, but part of it is the design of the questioning itself, which is not getting at this complex idea of, mm -hmm. is it a lie or is it truth, but really do you recognize something that you shouldn't recognize or do you not? And then using that to inform whether somebody is lying or telling the truth. Mm. Okay. Okay. You know, I, I actually get the sense that there's a, there's a lot of um, catch up, if you like, going on in the different sectors, especially in the last couple of years. Um, who outside of the newer science, newer technology community and industry needs to get a grip with the science and its impact on their own industry community the most? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because we were talking about how well received the book was in this moment. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is because I was looking at it sector by sector. right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and so chapter two of the book is your brain at work, which is, you know, employers um, worldwide and how neurotechnology is already being integrated into the workplace and how it will increasingly over time mm -hmm. or corporations who are using neuromarketing or using other features yeah. of technology to embed it into, um, you know, it, using kind of brain heuristics or brain shortcuts to uh, design their technology. And so I think really, as we look at it at sectors, the biggest, broadest sector is, you know, corporations generally, and that's corporations as employers, but it's also corporations as developing products and as developing websites and as engaging in advertisement. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I saw that as well. I totally agree with you. And and, and I've got a, another episode coming out purely on neuromarketing, which um I'll probably mm -hmm. tag you in on that as well. So you can look at that. Okay, great. Um, I want to talk about a fairly recent post from you on LinkedIn okay. about um, TikTok and China. You made a very bold and open statement in The Guardian, and I quote, TikTok is part of a much bigger strategy of cognitive warfare. We need a plan. Um, cognitive warfare, what is that? And how does it manifest itself? And what is your concern? So, you know, that article really is looking at the fact that you know, there's this one platform, which is a very powerful platform, which has been identified and targeted, which is TikTok. Mm. Um, but, you know, the the reasons that the U.S. government is so anxious about it is the influence it has on, on people's brains and mental experiences and the collection of data from people and the information that can be probed about people's behaviors and preferences and biases. Um, and I wrote that article to say, like, let's put this in a bigger context, which is uh, the current um, declaration of, of, you know, countries and even NATO is that the next major battleground, the next major mm -hmm. frontier in war is the mind. It's the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and that human domain as the next major area of warfare, the sixth domain of warfare, as some of them are referring to, is this cognitive warfare idea. And cognitive warfare is everything from influence campaigns, which can happen through, you know, platforms like TikTok and others, especially mm -hmm. when they're state sponsored or state driven for kind of what goes viral and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, but all the way to the development of, you know, kind of purported brain control weaponry. Um, there are, you know, declassified documents and and um and translated documents from the Chinese military that talk about their investment in um, technologies that could disable and disorient the human brain and mm -hmm. the, you know, um, the kind of fears in the U.S. diplomatic community uh, for several years have been that there is the so-called Havana syndrome that's happened, uh -huh. where it was first reported by a series of diplomats who were based in um, Cuba at the time 
who reported these feelings of disorientation and headaches and, you know, ringing in their ears and sounds that they were hearing. Um, and when there was brain imaging done, uh, there was consistent evidence of some kind of brain damage that had been happening in these individuals. And so the question was, was there some kind of weapon, whether it was electromagnetic or microwave based weapon that was being used and targeted at, um, diplomats in, uh, you know, um, different consulates around the world. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. intelligence community has recently come out and said, we don't think it was a foreign adversary behind these. Um, but there's been a lot of, you know, debate over the past couple of years from the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine, who came out saying, we do think it is uh, some kind of weapon that was deployed to use to disable and disorient the human brain to, um, you know, differences of opinion within the um, mm-hmm. intelligence community about what's been happening. All that is to say, regardless of whether Havana syndrome is an example of it or not, mm-hmm. this race appears to be underway to develop some kinds of weapons that could target and disable the human brain. And if that's the case, th- we need to be worried about that much more broadly, which is not just one platform that might be targeted um, at individuals to influence their preferences, their beliefs, their, uh, you know, kind of cultural uh yeah you know, understanding, but if the brain is the battlefield for governments and for targeting, mm-hmm. what is our countermeasure to that more generally, whether it's to safeguard people from hidden influences online to safeguarding people from literally weapons being, you know, targeted at disabling and disorienting their brains. Mm-hmm. But but I think the article sort of focuses on sort of TikTok. Isn't that applicable to with Facebook? Isn't that applicable with Well, less so, I mean, less so because at least as far as we're aware, um, we, the the US government isn't deciding how the algorithms operate, or they're not able to interfere with which posts go viral. And there have been reports about um, on the TikTok platform that, you know, certain influencers or voices are suppressed and other perspectives, um, you know, there's a button which is pushed mm-hmm. to put it into the for you and make it go viral. And that, mm-hmm. which is the kind of selective override or selective mm-hmm. silencing of some voices or selective amplification, particularly by a state um, actor, I think, mm-hmm. is the reason why it's more dangerous. There's also the question about whether the, you know, what it is that the algorithms can learn about people's behaviors and preferences, which ultimately could then be used to continue to shape and change how they think and feel, whether that information is being collected by um, the Chinese state, and if it is, uh, how that could be used or misused. So I think the difference really is not um, you know, the algorithms themselves mm-hmm. in that, whether it's Facebook or whether it's, um, you know, Instagram it's or any of these platforms, it. It, that's right. It's who is doing it. Who's using it, who's um, controlling it. Yeah. And, and what, what their, what their kind of intentionality is, right. Yeah, to what, what end. What end, yes. yes yeah. Okay. Now when, you know, when something like Facebook is being, you know, when, when they're giving access to companies like Cambridge Analytica to influence mm-hmm. campaigns, mm-hmm. yes. I mean, same problem, right. Which is the, you know, very powerful social media platforms are being mm-hmm. used to shape preferences and desires. And so, um, you know, while the government has singled out TikTok, I wouldn't personally single out TikTok as being alone in the kind of warfare against the brain. Mm-hmm. But I, but to the extent that it is um, deeply intertwined with the government itself, it becomes much more a tool of government warfare rather mm-hmm. than a kind mm-hmm. of corporate platform that can also influence and change our brains. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and more the move in terms of the warfare to cognitive processes. So that's that's the, right. That's the thing in your face. Okay, I, I, I want to talk about um, regulations on a, an international level. Um, you know, for instance, um, digital service tax, an unrelated topic, but it's fairly new because of the the era we're living in. Um, we struggle to we struggle to get a literally to get a consensus on this between the US and Europe, namely France and Germany, never mind China. This is, um, I would say it's fairly linear, uh, and I use the term loosely in, in comparison to what we're talking about today. How do we even begin to regulate 
this, what we're talking about now on an international level when different players have different political stances, ideologies, level of development, this must be fundamentally different, poles apart even, depending on country. What do you say on this, Nita? So, you know, it is a very tough area to come up with specific regulations. And, And by area, what I mean is, if we try to single out just a single technology, like neurotechnology, for example, mm-hmm. um, I, I think we're always a step behind. Now, right now, neurotechnology, as I, I've described it, you know, it exists, consumer wearables are already here, commodification yeah. of the brain yeah. has already begun, but it hasn't reached wide-scale societal use yet. And so there is a moment at which we could actually reach at least some consensus about what good and bad uses of neurotechnology are. But the approach that I recommend is more of an umbrella um, concept of liberty in the digital age. If we try to have metaverse rights or AI rights or neurotech rights and the like, I think we're always a step behind and, and we don't recognize that all of these technologies act um, in combination with each other mm-hmm. to affect our brains and mental experiences. And so if we approach it differently, which is to say, look, you know, yes, we have different conceptions of exactly where we would draw the line on any of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But we do all have, you know, this universal concept of individual liberty. And whether... But do you know, we? It, well, so so we do in this Even way. Even on that is, level. So we do in this way, which is, you know, in some countries that are more communitarian, for example, yeah. individual liberty yields more often. It's always a relative right, right? So the societal interest will outweigh the individual interest in many instances, in a communitarian government mm-hmm, or a communitarian mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, society. In a society that is based and rooted more in individual liberties, rarely will the individual liberty yield to the societal interest. But if you set up a, a you know, kind of update to liberty to inclu- include this idea of cognitive liberty and recognize that cognitive liberty is really fundamental to human flourishing, when you think it should yield may vary, and um and and but if you start with these are the basic rights and then exactly what the balance between societal and individual may vary country by country and context by context but the principle the universality of the concept remains the same mm-hmm. i think it gives you a way to be able to navigate across cultural societal government divides on the issue um you know if you were try if you if you tried to have uh, rights around a particular technology or absolute human rights that never yield to societal interest, you would never get agreement. Mm-hmm. But if you update a relative right, um, like liberty, and recognize that context-wise and government-wise and society and culturally, it may vary in its balance between individuals and the society writ large, I think you can achieve universality. Well, that's optimistic. <laughs> um, I, I, okay. I, I would pursue. I, I'm nothing if not an optimist. So I like. Uh, yeah. If anything, I'm in, I, I, like. I have hope that we collectively can at least reach consensus that the human brain and mind is a fundamental aspect to human flourishing. Now, whether it, you know, we can't reach universality as to how much to privilege any individuals brain and mental experience relative to societal interest. That's going to vary by culture. That's going to vary by country. That's going to vary by national security interests. Um, But a good starting place is to at least agree where we can. And where we can, I think, agree is that it is critical to human flourishing. Okay. Okay. I'll I'll move on from there. Um, (laughs) But but I have to move on because I, I know you're time conscious and we could just spend the whole episode talking about this <laughs> but so I, I'm, I'm tight-lipped and I'm moving on um but let's continue with the, the human rights and I, I, I want to talk about data protection just briefly about data protection if we look at data protection and the laws that we have in place are you expecting the same for what would be classed as brain data um it's a great question and and, um, and the reason it's a great question isn't just because you asked it. It is because um, it's because, you know, what there, there's a, a, a rich debate around the extended mind, right? How mm. much of the mind is really contained in 
the brain itself and how much of it is um, contained in both other aspects of our body, but also in our phones and in our devices and kind of everywhere else. Like mm. where is, is the brain and where are your mental experiences? I think we could start with the core again uh, on the, I'm, I'm always an optimist of, about can we agree on some things? And we could say, you know, literally what's inside your head and what is communicated through your peripheral nervous system that goes, you know, from the brain down the body yep. um, counts as brain data. I think where it gets a lot harder is there are all kinds of technologies that are aimed at trying to decode how you think and feel based on um, your keystrokes or your search terms or even, you know, your patterns of uh, GPS and location data, and then using that to make inferences about you as a person. Is that brain data because what it's trying to get at is what you think and feel or trying to get at changing what you think and feel? Um, I would probably draw the distinction to say, while all of that tries to get at your brains and mental experiences, it's not brain data um, in that it's using, you know, kind of second and third degree uh, pieces of information to backwards infer what you're thinking and feeling mm -hmm. and, um, and, and the kind of direct decoding of what you're thinking and feeling from your body, from your brain, from the rest of your body mm -hmm. is it gets at pieces that are not expressed. So things that are not in your words mm -hmm. and actions. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the kind of piece that I think is most sensitive that we really have to act to collaboratively protect, which is the piece of yourself that you hold back from words and actions um, and, you know, are, is, is kept hidden in, in, in many ways inside. That's where the biggest danger is. Now, if we wanted to be broader and protect you from the inferences that are trying to be made about how you think and feel, I certainly wouldn't be opposed to that. I just think that'd be very, very difficult to draw the line. You know, we're always trying to um, read each other's minds yeah. in everyday, you know, and, interactions. And, 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 and so being stressed by the complexity of it. It Just, is, it is very stressful, which is why for me, from a, from a legal perspective, this, like as a, as a legal scholar, I yeah. try to figure out where can you draw a bright line in ways that are actionable and, um, you know, it mm. can actually be implemented. And so for me, it is while all of that other stuff could have problems, it's very difficult to legally draw any kind of bright line around it. Whereas we can draw a bright line around anything that seeks to directly interface with body, whether it's, you know, by attaching yeah. to your scalp inside of your scalp or attached to sensors on your body to pick up unexpressed words and actions from your body to make those inferences about what's happening in your brain and mental experiences. Yeah, I was just thinking about it for you um, in your space, the complexity, the headache, the stress, and at the same time, the excitement. So you're almost having kind of a schizophrenic. Um... Yeah. I mean, so it is, which is like, I see it from its full yes. um, threat, right? From kind of all of the different things. And then I, you know, I go back to my training as a lawyer and as a legal scholar and I say, okay, but we need to think about this practically and pragmatically, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, I'm a philosopher too, and I'm I'm happy to engage in the big philosophical debates of what really is the brain and what really okay. is the mind, right? Exactly. But then as a as a legal scholar, I say like, <laughs> exactly. okay, that's all well and good, but how are we going to boil that down into law, <laughs> so right? Wearing, how are we actually going to figure out where to draw lines? Yeah, so you're wearing numerous hats and, and talking to yourself, yes, yes. wearing those different hats. That's what I'm yes, saying. exactly. Like a, yes. A the philosopher experience. self is talking to the, yes, the legal scholar self a, a, inside yes. the head. And the philosopher is like, but is that really mind? Exactly. Is that really brain? You know, and then the legal scholar says, okay, that's all well and good, yes. but I still yeah. need to draw some legal lines and make, you know, make actual decisions here. Yeah, because <laughs> while you were talking, that's exactly what I was thinking, what you must be doing to yourself um, in, in coming to some kind of conclusions yes. on what's next. Okay, okay. Um, yes. I, 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 want to, I want to explore societal impact now and in the future, in particular in the mm -hmm. future with this question. Um, many have said, and you've mentioned it, I think a couple of times now, that our last frontier is our brain, um, our thoughts. Right. That's the last frontier. Yeah. Thinking about the future, because I'm I, I assume it's not in place now, but thinking about the future, how do we, we get to know someone um, on their own terms if we can read mm -hmm. their minds? 
how will relationships develop in the future? Th this is picking out um, the philosopher Nina, Nita, sorry. Um, um, yes. will, will we no longer use the phrase, don't lie to me? Um, do, do you envisage when, right. do you, you know, what do you envisage when, when we look at society with this kind of technology available to, to the masses? And I was speaking to the philosophical Nita and hopefully the legal Nita will yes. come in at the end of it. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, so great, great question as well. And I worry about that very much as well. So, you know, if you think about what is it that defines intimacy in human relationships or, yes. you know, how do you define the difference between your closest friends versus, um, you know, your, your everyday colleagues, your everyday acquaintances. And a big part of that is the degree to which you make yourself vulnerable to mm. your closest friends and, that vulnerability comes in what you share, the kind of intimate details of your own mental landscape yes. and your feelings that you choose to share with someone else. You also, you know, think of like professional you, like who who is it that you project and um, and what's the best version of yourself that you project? So you grow up with all of these biases um, and, and you work against them. You say like, I don't want to be that person. I want to transcend that. And I want to be a person who, um, you know, is, is a better person. I have, mm -hmm. I have goals for who I am. Now imagine a world in which, you know, your intimacy is defined by who has access to your brain data. <laughs> um, and, you know, your, your partner says, I want to know if you're really in love with me or in lust with me. And I want the brain data to prove it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, your, uh, your biases are made transparent to others, even though, they don't represent your own version of yourself. Like, what does that look like for social relationships? And I, I worry a lot about that too. Now I, I will say like, when I put on my other hat for a moment, I think, okay, but how are those people going to get access to that information? I've had some people have some very thoughtful answers to that. Like, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, to, to socially fit in these days, there's a lot of declarations about yourself um, that are asked of you to prove uh, you know, your belief in different equality or your belief in different standards. Like, mm -hmm. you know, something that's become quite common is for people to put in their signature line of their um, emails, their pronouns, or they're asked to, yeah. to yeah. say their pronouns, which is, you know, has signaling effect in and of itself, right? To, to show that you're um, an ally, that you believe in a certain mm -hmm. set of mm -hmm. um, terms. And and somebody said to me recently, like, will, we, will it come to the place where like you need to, um, you know, take different uh, performative measures with your brain to prove that you don't hold certain biases, that there will be mm -hmm. you know, kind of baseline tests that you have to actually mm -hmm. make transparent to others or, you know, in a partnership that somebody could ask of you, um, I want you to wear this, you know, or I want you to do this quick mm -hmm. test mm -hmm. that shows uh, what your brain activity shows when you're looking at images of me and whether that conjures up love or not mm -hmm. love when mm -hmm. you say you love me, can you prove it? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is a world that we could imagine, right? It's not so far-fetched from the world that we live in today mm -hmm. with a lot mm -hmm. of other measures. Mm -hmm. um, so that I think, you know, socially, we have a role in, in deciding how these technologies are used, how they'll be deployed mm -hmm. um, and whether, that's a world we want to live in. And if we ask that of each other, yeah. um, we have to realize that we are, yeah. we're transforming what it means to be human and what those relationships yeah. look like. And, and, I, and I sort of imagine in terms of the, the deployment of it and when and who and, and, and how it's deployed, um, it, public service um, people, public service individuals will be almost be the first in a sort of a, a work environment that, that have to take this before right. we get into certain jobs like nursing, policing, teaching, that sort of thing, to to, show, to to ensure that their I don't know their their thoughts are in line with the work that they're doing, that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. And I just think data protection and who will have access to such information if needed on a different level, the highest bidder. Who mm -hmm. that sort of I'm not quite sure if I'd be very comfortable with that sort of world going forward. Would you? Yeah. No, I wouldn't. I mean, I, um, and, and it's not hard to imagine just as exactly as you describe it, where it would start, um, mm -hmm. you know, already, you know, we mentioned earlier the employment context. So already, uh, if, if you are working at one of these thousands of companies world 
worldwide that have partnered with some of the neurotech companies that provide yeah. for fatigue management. You know, if you're a commercial driver or a pilot yeah. or a train conductor, you're required to wear brain sensors that track your fatigue mm. levels. Now those are, you know, justified in the theory of, um, yeah. you know, that, that they're safety. in public service and safety for yes. others. Yes. Um, and so in the same way that you're describing, which is, you know, a lot of public officials here yeah. in the yeah. United States, they have to take a lie detector, a polygraph in yeah. order to, yeah. can, you know, can we imagine that they'll have to either- well, I think the justification to... will get wider and wider and wider yes. until we all have yes. to do it. Yes, yes. And that's and the fear, no right? Which is anything anymore because we all have to do it. It's yeah. Cool. There's this slow, slow creep to the normalization of surveillance. Yes. And, yes. Um, you know, in the beginning, people are shocked by it and think like, no, no, it could never yeah, happen. Yeah. And then little by little, there's this. You accept this it because it's only them creep. over there. That, you right, know. right. And like, oh, well, it's okay because I'm not a commercial driver. So it's okay yes, if their exactly. brains are monitored. And yeah. well, I'm not a public official. So it's okay if their brains are monitored. And you know, I'm slowly it becomes normalized in society. I'm not a pilot, and I'm actually quite right. glad that the pilot is being monitored because I don't right. want to, you know, that's what I don't thought. want it to crash. Exactly. Yes, and exactly. so, like, as long as it's them instead of me, it's perfectly yes. fine. And and, and then, then suddenly, until like, you, until you fit the category and nobody's there to stand up for you. Right. Or right. Or like, or, you know, I'm okay with it. You, be, you being used on criminals because I'm not a criminal. Yes, and so, like, exactly. you know, it's, and then you just have this context creep where suddenly we're in like 1984. Yeah. And, yes, exactly. You know, so, yeah. it? First yeah. they came for the this, first they came for the that. Mm -hmm. it's that phrase again. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Everybody should reread yes. 1984 if yes. they haven't now because, yes. like, it's, it's, it's very good and, and I, very I, precious. I'm sure that's very popular right now at the moment. Yes. Yes. It never went away. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, uh, one of the things in doing this series that that interests me about um, the newer science development, newer technology, and deep learning is that surely this this will have the biggest impact on how we educate our children. Uh, the compulsory education model hasn't really changed uh, for hundreds of years. Now is the time. Do you mm -hmm. do you agree, Nita? You know, it's interesting because um, I think as a professor, it is we're going to have to rethink everything about education. Mm. Um, and, you know, like, what are the skills people need to know in today's day and age? And how do they learn best? Every child learns a little bit differently. And, you know, when you have chat bots that can be personal tutors, um, but yeah. they're also inaccurate and um, socially isolating, like, how do we decide how to implement that kind of technology? And what does that do long-term to the brain? of individuals mm -hmm. and creativity of individuals. Um, but, you know, our education system and how we educate people really hasn't changed much in, no, you know, millennia. <laughs> and um, and I just, I think it it's probably quite outdated in terms of how to be teaching people, what yes. to be teaching them, whether to be teaching them certain things. And so, you know, absolutely. I think um, even whether it's compulsory education at the youngest ages or me as a university professor yeah. thinking, what do my students need to know and how, like, what, what yeah. is the value of education at this point and, and yeah. how do we um, transform it so that it continues yes. to actually be giving people the critical skills that they need in today's day and age? Yes. And maybe it'd be very different. I mean, cause you, you, I said compulsory education to start off with. You started, you talked about compulsory education. Maybe education will be continuous until the day we die, depending on how the whole thing is changed. I think it will. Sense. I mean, I think it I think it'll be continuous. I think it'll be lifelong. I think we'll yeah. also need to figure out what it looks like in different phases of life, right? So yeah. like maybe yeah. at the youngest age, you need to be learning core yeah. and foundational skills. Maybe as you're older, there needs to be you know, constant and continuing, especially technological, um, yes. you know, yeah. teaching, like uh, all of us have parents probably at this point who we field phone calls of like, wait, where is the button and how does that work? Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, yeah. um, and, and th there needs to be continuous engagement with technology and continuous, yeah. um, skills yeah. and education yeah. over time and, yeah. and life level leveled skill mm. level but skills it, training yeah. based on where we are in life. i just feel it's not happening i just feel it's no. not happening we're still in the sort of classroom the teacher up front sort of format i, I just i feel that somehow it's not a case of if it's not broke fix it it's not the big pen i think technology has changed somewhat i agree that education I agree. needs I to know, move you know in. it's interesting because like people keep like when the 
I don't know, it was maybe a decade ago that, that there were some universities that popped up where people were like, look, the idea that we're going to have bricks and mortar yeah. um, teaching is not going to exist. And then during the pandemic, I think people figured out, actually, there is some good value to being in person that you lose yes. online. Yes. Um and so, you know, there's something there. We've learned something. Yeah. We haven't learned everything, no, right? And, and the well, question is like, yeah. how do we take the best of what we've learned and yeah. continue to yeah. innovate and figure out what people actually need yeah. to know these days? Exactly. And, and the debate will go on. Actually, I'd like to to end this episode um, with a question that I'm really curious to know your answer on this, um, Nita. In this space, what we've been talking about, what really keeps you awake at night? Oh, um, what really that was a sigh. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, you know, I, I suppose it's the moment that I'm in, which is I have small children mm. and I really just, I'm anxious about what the future looks like for them. Like, what is the world that we're creating and reshaping? And is it a place where, you know, creativity and where these like uniquely, um, human to human interactions that we've had in the past will continue to exist. Um, are we designing a future uh, where humans will continue to flourish and continue to have a broad space of, you know, happiness and joy and mm -hmm. mental delight? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure that we are, you know, I, I see their world shrinking, not expanding in many mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. And so I worry a lot about how do we design a future for the children um, who will inherit it that will continue to be a place of wonder and um, continue to be a place of relevance for humans in, in, in even the most basic way. Mm. It's, 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 it's interesting that are we at a period where we are more concerned for our children's future as opposed to our parents and our parents before us who are hopeful and excited about the, the children's future? I do worry about that. I do. I do think that we're at, we're at a phase where, you know, it's a very disruptive phase. Um, mm -hmm. I think in in human evolution, and it's happening so rapidly that yeah. it's difficult for us to even appreciate what the consequences of it are. And um, given that kind of rapid period of change and disruption, mm -hmm. there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of uh, you know kind of basic concerns and. For yeah. me, that's that's sort of why I went to this first principle idea of like what is fundamental to human flourishing, yeah. um, and how is it different in the digital age than you know the kind of ancient philosophers and wisdom that we've yes. had in the past, and you know the focus on happiness and all of those things I think is terrific. All of that presumed a world in which our brains and mental experiences were our own, yeah. and you know that missing piece in these kind of theories wow. of human flourishing wow. is is where my focus is. Is like how do we how do we find meaning in today's day and age? Yes, um, a, a sort of a, a somber question. Do you see the word liberty being archaic in the future? I hope not. <laughs> I hope it's not at <laughs> yes, all. Forgot. You're very hopeful, aren't you? Very yes, hopeful. I am. I, I am hopeful. And <laughs> if, I think... if, if, you're, if I put you on the stand and I want you to answer honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so I will say if we don't act otherwise, I do think that word will become obsolete. I think um, the reason that I'm, you know, like sounding the alarm and and calling our attention to this fundamental aspect of liberty, which needs updating in the digital age to include this idea of cognitive liberty is because we are making that obsolete and we're making the basic foundations and fundamental concept of liberty obsolete if we don't act otherwise and do something differently now. Mm. Nita Fahani, this has been fantastic. A great contribution to the Neurotech series on Heads Talk today. Many thanks for your time and insights. Thanks so much for having me. It was a delightful conversation. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.